Hello, uh, dear listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Um, my name is Bill Wirtz. I'm a senior policy analyst at the Consumer Choice Center. I am joined by Dr. Uh, Kanya Rajasekaran. Rajasekaran, I'm sorry, I'm butchering your name. <laughs> but uh, he's, a, he's a research biologist at the, at the US Department uh, of, of Agriculture, and he's specialized on the issue of uh, mycotoxins. First of all, uh, Doctor, thank you for, uh, for joining us today. Thank you, Bill. Uh, I'm extremely pleased to uh, uh, discuss with you about uh, the importance of mycotoxins. Thank you. Um, so first of all, let's let's dive into this issue. Mycotoxins, it sounds like a complicated medical term, but so what, what exactly are we talking about here? What are mycotoxins and what do they mean for consumers? Mycotoxins is myco refers to fungus. So the any toxin produced by the fungus is actually called mycotoxin. And there is a, a almost, a, you know, several millions of fungal species. Out of that, maybe only uh, 70 to 100,000 have been studied very carefully. And of that, there are small section of the fungal species that are actually toxin producing. That's what we are going to talk about today. Yeah, so in, there's, there's a wide array of, of my, different types of mycotoxins. Can you just lead us through which ones are problematic for human health and, and, and do they affect animals? Like what, what exactly are, are their effects? What, what do they constitute? In fact, uh, only very few fungal species that produce toxins are of importance to us because they are the ones causing a lot of damage to the human health uh, as of today. If I have to name the top three, it'll be the first one will be Aspergillus species, and the second one will be Fusarium species, and the third one is probably um, um, Penicillium. And you know, but um, we work on controlling the Aspergillus fungus, which produces aflatoxins. Aflatoxins is nothing but a group, a subsection of mycotoxins, AFLA, that is Aspergillus flavus toxin, so aflatoxin. So, so that's how it is uh, got the name. And this is one of the most dangerous, naturally produced dangerous carcinogenic compound. It is so uh, dangerous, the uh, International uh, Agency for Cancer Research, they, that's a, it's a global body, IARC, has labeled this as a group one carcinogen uh, which is the highest level it can uh, give to any chemical. So this is actually really dangerous. If consumed in large quantities, uh, the acute toxicity results in uh, liver cancer. And in uh, small quantities, it can actually um, uh, create a lot of other problems like uh, stunting in children, uh, uh, learning disability, that kind of stuff. So, uh, so we need to be careful not to have this problem uh, permeate through our food supply. Uh, but unfortunately, it is not so in several countries where this is not being monitored properly. Uh, in all the developed countries, it is being monitored. In fact, the export regulations dictate that they cannot accept more than certain level depending on the country. So that's being taken care of really well. But in African countries, in Asian countries, uh, this is a big problem, and unfortunately, several people have actually lost their lives because of this toxin. 
you you say it's a it, it's a problem that's larger in in in, in un, less developed countries. Um, can you give us a uh, perspective on how prevalent this problem is in the United States, and then to compare it with other countries? Like how how, how much how prevalent is this? Uh, this problem? Well, let me let me uh, um, uh, say address this in a different way. What are the crops that are most susceptible for this problem, even including in the United States? Uh, uh, corn, one of the major food crops in the United States, is uh, susceptible. Cotton, although it's not a food crop, the cotton seed is processed as an animal feed. So that's another uh, crop. Then peanuts or groundnuts, as they call it in Asia, uh, that's also highly susceptible to this problem. So we are trying to address uh, a lot of means to control this fungus before it reaches the consumer table. So I, I hope to discuss with you on that also. Yeah, so it's a wide array of, of products. Now, um, give us a sense of how do mycotoxins develop in, 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 these, in these crops? Like, how does it, how, how, does that just naturally occur in all crops? Or is that, does that have, is there a climate related uh, um, um, issue as well? Well, you hit all the uh, nails right there. You know, uh, in Paris, it, it is a naturally occurring problem. But this problem get exacerbated because of uh, drought conditions. You know, whenever there is a severe drought or, uh, or, or a um, lack of uh, water uh, and uh, high levels of carbon dioxide, which is another manifestation of the climate change, this all can actually change how bad this problem can be. It can be uh, so bad uh, in US corn industry alone uh, it expected the projected loss of this problem is up, up to $1.5 billion a year. So that's what the projection is. But on an average, we, can, we, we do see anywhere from 300 to $900 million of loss. Uh, this is crop loss only. So if you include the mitigation efforts, the human costs, the health costs and all that, the costs actually add, add up quite a bit. And um, what, what examples of, uh, of health consequences can you give uh, for large consumptions? You, you, mentioned, you mentioned it's carcinogenic. What cancers can it cause and what other health problems as well? Well, uh, uh, the uh, aspergillus fungus itself, when it produces lots of spores, people can inhale these spores, especially in, in immunocompromised people. This can actually go and dislodge in their lungs and it causes aspergillosis that is the name of the disease uh, but the toxic effect is actually the toxin itself the toxin aflatoxin produced by this fungus uh, when in acute doses can actually cause liver cancer and uh, sometimes uh, like i mentioned it, the, in smaller doses it can cause stunting in children and um, uh, learning disability and all that thing but I'm talking about only the aspergillus fungus now, but the other major one is actually the fumonisin, which is a mycotoxin produced by the fusarium fungus, which infects uh, uh, more like corn, wheat, barley, grain sorghum, all these crops. And this toxin is well known to cause throat cancer, uh, the esophagus, esophageal cancer. Um, so, AIR scientists have studied this for a long time, as well as all the university scientists. 
So um, these are the two major ones, but of course there are a lot of minor ones called um, trichothecenes and uh, DON, which is uh, deoxyvalinol, uh, otherwise known as vomitoxin. It actually creates vomiting. So we study only controlling aflatoxin in our group. There are other ARS groups that are actually studying the toxins produced by the Fusarium fungus, which is Fumonacin, and they study trichothecenes and other toxins as well. Um, you, you mentioned that uh, it's, it's um, climate-specific, but it, 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 is, it is still uh, widespread. Does climate change affect the prevalence of mycotoxin contamination? Yes, uh, unfortunately, the increasing levels of carbon dioxide and the uh, sudden change in temperature, I'm not talking about one or two days or a month to month variation, but if there is a shift in the maximum temperature, even by one degree Celsius, this is what we call global warming. Uh, this fungus can actually uh, infect uh, in an area which is uh, beyond its normal hab habitat. So it can move up to say uh, the northern states of the, the country, and uh, even in Europe, they, you know, there has been well documented that a slight change in temperature and water availability and carbon dioxide levels can cause a lot of damage with this increasing climate effects. So let's bring this to a, to a personal consumption level for people to understand. We, we here in Europe, we've observed this a recent study by the University of Copenhagen that found that a, that a large amount of consumers think that the fact that product has molds shows that it's natural and that uh, that even leads to the, the belief that the consumption of these products after they had mold is um, is safe. Uh, can you speak to this feeling? Do you, do you understand, like, can you can you give us a feeling where this comes from, this, these ideas of, of, of consumers and speak to the to the dangers of these, of these ideas? I can actually uh, talk from a personal perspective and, uh, you know, uh, because I'm a plant scientist, so I actually study how to develop resistance to these fungal species in plants. But um, I'm also a group, I'm directing a group which is working on these fungal toxins also. So we, we know a lot about the fungus also. So uh, like you said, yes, I agree. There are a lot of naturally uh, occurring fungal species. They are good species. They actually uh, degrade a lot of things that we don't want to see in nature. And they can produce a lot of enzymes that the industries make use of for several industrial purposes. And uh, even cheese, some of the cheese that we consume, they are actually produced because of this uh, fungal uh, infection, some good fungal infection. But we have to uh, uh, caution um, that even among plants, although all the plants are actually really useful to humankind, there are some plants which are extremely toxic. You know, even if you eat one or two berries of these plants, you can actually die on the spot. You know, like that in fungus also, most of the fungal species are probably good. And I, I can understand where the, you know, the, the reference is coming from. But some fungal species like Aspergillus, Fusarium, when they infect the crops, the fungus themselves may not be toxic. You know, if you say you accidentally ate something that is infected with the fungal mass, 
that may not be toxic. But when the fungus starts producing the toxins and that toxin gets contaminated, uh, uh, contaminate the food supply, they become really a big problem. Like I mentioned to you, aflatoxins are extremely toxic. You know, the, the, the level is actually the regulation, the, the international regulation, at, at least I shouldn't talk about international, the US makes sure that the level is, does not exceed four nanogram per gram. That is one nanogram is actually one billionth of a gram. So that is four nanogram per gram in milk and all that, it is still lower, up below, uh, not more than two uh, nanogram per gram. Uh, in other words, it can be a microgram per kilogram, which is one, you know, uh, so I'm saying this in nanogram per gram so that uh, you can relate to the uh, toxic effect of these uh, uh, compounds. So, uh, the main aspect of this is actually, you know, it's extremely toxic even at a lower level. That's that's what we need to uh, concentrate on. Now, you, you mentioned it's it's naturally occurring, but um, the way I understood it, it can also um, arise as a bigger problem through uh, bad food storage. Um, so, what importance does food storage play in this in this context? That, that's a good, good, good point. Uh, you know, of course, aflatoxins can actually contaminate the field crops. So, when we harvest, the grains are already contaminated because the fungus invaded the seeds and it produces the toxin. This is what we call a pre-harvest contamination. Then, once you, even if you harvest clean crop from the field and store it in unsafe conditions, meaning higher humidity, uh, higher temperature, unclean conditions, this fungus can actually start infecting stored grain material also. So the, the reason why we are working on both, you know, we need to control pre-harvest contamination and, and we need to control post-harvest storage also. Only then the dietary uh, intake from these grains will be safe to eat. Uh, there are many ways of controlling these things. Uh, you know, the, of course, you know there are a lot of experts in in all these areas. Um, hopefully, we can get into that also later. Yes, absolutely. We, we, we will get to that now about the, the storage. Um, uh, when it comes to retailers, so I spend um, a, a lot of time during the summer in in Turkey. And I saw very often that in you know supermarkets you would have the vegetable fruits and vegetables outside, and they would be in the sun at uh, you know uh, thirty three degrees Celsius. Um, mm. That mm. is is does that constitute a problem? Does this create uh, this a similar problem, or uh, is this is is this not an issue? Uh, if you are mentioning about the temperature, uh, maybe that is not the sole uh, criteria for saying that these are vulnerable for aflatoxin contamination. But if we store them in a high temperature, high humidity, this is actually an ideal condition for the fungus to grow, any fungus, including Aspergillus or Fumonacin, and they can actually take over the storage lot and then actually produce a lot of toxins. Uh, so I won't, I won't you know, say only the temperature is a major thing, but it's a combination of things, unsafe, unclean conditions or storage conditions. When it comes to uh, uh, marmalade, is, how does that work? Sometimes I've seen in a marmalade that wasn't closed correctly, you see uh, the, the, the mold on top of it. 
there again my grandmother would say just cut it off and then eat the rest how how does that is it is it the same there uh i know mamale jar that's one of my favorite ones also but unfortunately if you leave it longer out in the open uh, you know this is this is a way of in, attracting even if a single spore lands on a sugary marmalade or any other jam or something they will start growing but uh if you see a lot of them on this spot you, you can cut it away people do that all the time but the thing is you don't want to consume when there is an overgrowth of this fungal material on the jars inside or on top of the jam itself or the marmalade i wouldn't i wouldn't recommend it you know uh, it, it is uh, unsafe to eat anything that is totally infected by unknown fungus at this point so you we want to be make sure we want to make sure that people don't eat by mistake uh you know this is a fungal infection it's a good what good fungus or a bad fungus you don't know that if you know that that's well and good but if you do you have to act accordingly to discard that thing now let's let's come to the to the issue of how what what tools farmers are using to prevent mycotoxin contamination um what products do they use what methods do they use we are trying to uh deal with this in uh, three different ways number one uh uh one is actually controlling the fungus itself the fungus that occurs in soil which we which i'm going to label it as a biological control when microbiologists or fungal uh mycologists go and look at the fields they can sample the aspergillus species for example and there are there are almost several species that do not produce this toxin and some they do so we need to encourage the non toxin producing strains to grow at the expense of the toxin producing one that is the whole concept of biological control that was developed in our institute right here and now it has been applied to a lot of cotton growing areas in arizona corn growing areas in uh, uh taxes and peanut growing areas in the southeastern states and this technology has been exported overseas also that you know in fact there are 35 or 36 countries are using this technology as of today um with a lot of financial support from gates foundation the african union and uh, europe has a big uh, a program to control this uh, toxins also and our scientists are working with uh, people in south america uh, south african south american governments mexico uh, pakistan australia all these places this technology is being applied to control uh, using the biological control mechanism so the biological control is one of these uh, better way of dealing with it but then again it's not 100% control even if you get 80 or 90% control the toxin level that remains on the crop can still be toxic so we need to look at other mechanism of control also so we need to jump to other methods where we can transfer the genes very quickly from a resistant line to a susceptible line that's where the uh, transgenic mechanism comes in uh in fact uh, this is highly regulated as you as you know uh we can identify a gene resistant in uh, corn or even um, 
other plant species, then we can move that gene into uh, corn or cotton or peanuts, and we can actually uh, develop resistance this way. And, uh, <clears throat> and the third uh, uh, mechanism is actually by studying the fungus itself, how this fungus actually gets to make toxin at what stage. Although we don't understand the whole scope of uh, why the fungus makes the toxin, we can actually identify the fungal genes that are actually triggering the, uh, uh, the aflatoxin production. And in our, our, our uh, unit, we actually deciphered the whole pathway uh, to make aflatoxin by the fungus. So we can actually target those fungal genes and make them ineffective uh, in producing the toxin. How do we do that? We actually enamor the corn plants, empower the corn plants with a gene construct that will actually target the fungal genes. When the fungus invades corn or cotton seed or peanuts, they can actually target this one or two fungal genes only at the RNA level. RNA level meaning it does, you know, so it will degrade that RNA so the fungus cannot make toxin. This is what's called a host-induced gene silencing mechanism. This co-host meaning host plants, they actually silence the fungal genes in either aspergillus or fusarium or any other toxin producing fungi. And they can actually do that without producing any foreign protein in the plant because it's done at the RNA level. So RNA gets degraded, that is actually ephemeral, you know, it's, it disappears. <clears throat> and it's, this goes on, it cycles through and keeps continuously operating in the plant so that the fungus cannot make toxin or it won't, some of the genes if we target, they will not let even the fungus grow inside the plant. So that's what we are doing. So all these mechanisms mm -hmm. are in place. And of course, the most basic uh, practices, you know, how to control it on the field. Farmers have been very knowledgeable to do this. You know, when do you water? When do you control uh, uh, the drought condition? How do you control it? Uh, or um, can you uh, do kind of an application of, uh, you know, any other technology, even using um, mild dose of fungicides? You know, these, all these things can be uh, useful in controlling a severe toxic problem, but the longer time-consuming research is actually all those bi biological control is effective, as we know. Uh, producing breeding is uh, time-consuming, but we can actually hasten that by producing, um, transferring genes between places. And we can target the fungal genes themselves by the silencing mechanism, which has been proven very promising in our lab. And we, are, we will be testing some of those corn lines very soon out in the field uh, after getting permits from APHIS. Well, thank you so much for um, taking the time to explain to our listeners the implications, the methods, and the scientific background that, uh, that, uh, that governs this, this problem. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, to our listeners, uh, thank you for listening in. Uh, if you want to continue to follow our work, obviously you find us at consumerchoicecenter.org and, uh, and, uh, and, and continuing our work in agriculture, especially as we see 
ongoing reforms in Europe and interesting developments and new scientific innovations in the United States. Thank you again and have a nice day.